0: My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. If you want to make friends, I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to teach and educate you. So call me at one 800 743 cbc or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Tonight, I want to share some of my accumulated wisdom. Believe me, I've been doing this thing for a long time because there are so many different things you need to balance in order to be a great investor that it can be hard to keep track of everything that you need to do. And a lot of this stuff is much more important than the day-to-day action in any particular session. Without the right discipline, the right framework, the right, dare I say, philosophy, well, you're going to get yourself into trouble. But I also know that big-picture financial advice can be hard to process. A lot of it seems downright contradictory to most people. We tell you to have conviction, for instance, to stick with the companies you believe in. Then we say you need to be ready to change your mind on a dime when the facts change. You need to be cautious because it's so dangerous out there. But you also need to be ready to pounce on opportunities when they present themselves. You need to be skeptical. But you also need to know when to suspend your belief, your disbelief. You need to avoid chasing stocks that have run too much. But you also shouldn't care too much where a stock is coming from if you believe it's headed higher. You know the rules. It doesn't matter where a stock has come from. It's where it's headed to. Believe me, I get it. I get it. If you take all my rules literally, you're going to be running around in circles while tearing your hair out. I mean, how do you think I went bull? So tonight we're going to take a step back. Try to put all this discipline stuff into perspective. If you pick your own stocks, the thing you really need above everything else is good judgment. But obviously, good investing judgment is not the kind of thing anyone can teach you in an hour of television or even a year of television, for that matter. That's why I try to help you build good habits. I try to teach you better ways to think about individual stocks and the whole market. I try to give you the tools you need to develop your own judgment. All my best professors in college focused on teaching uh, us, us how to think, how to think not teaching us what to think. I've always tried to take my cue from them. I want to teach you how to be a better investor, not just tell you the stocks that I think are good investments. The problem is, that's a heck of a lot to process. So let's try to put it all in context. First and foremost, when you're managing your own money, before any other consideration, you need to know yourself. I've said this before, I'll keep saying it because it's so important. You simply can't know which stocks you should buy if you haven't taken the time to really consider what your own personal objectives are. And I can't decide them for you. Do you need to build up your wealth to ultimately make a major life-changing purchase like a home? Are you just trying to get a decent return as you save for retirement? Do you have money to burn that you're willing to take risk on more speculative propositions? Those are all different mindsets. The truth is, there is no one-size-fits-all approach to investing. And anybody who tells you differently is either dangerously misinformed or flat out lying to you. Probably in order to sell you something. But far too often, people invest in the stock market with the simple, simple, poorly defined goal of making some money. Yeah, all we want to do, want to make money. Everybody wants to make money. But how quickly do you want that return? What are you willing to risk to get there? How much can you even afford to risk in the first place? These are really important questions that you need to ask yourself before you start trying to pick any given stock. Why? Because without a clearly defined goal, you have no way to determine which stocks you should be buying. In other words, your uh, 401k, your IRA, or brokerage account do not exist in a vacuum. If you're trying to save up for retirement, a stock like a Netflix might not be the most appropriate place for you to put your capital. On the other hand, if you already got a decent-sized nest egg set aside for retirement, and you just want some capital appreciation, then Netflix and the rest of its fast-growing FANG cohorts, Facebook, Amazon, Google, now Alphabet, well, they all seem, well, let's just say they start to look a lot more attractive given that mindset. In short, before you can start making judgments about individual stocks, you need to figure out what your own internal yardstick is going to look like. That's the foundation of good investing judgment, knowing what you need so you can find stocks that are suitable to your particular needs. Let me put it another way. If you want to fly across the Pacific Ocean, you do it in an airplane, a Boeing 747. You don't try to fly across the Pacific in a Ford Fiesta. Now, if you want to pick up your, your kids from school, taxing down Main Street in the 747 would be, I'd say, uh, really impractical. In that situation, you'd be much better with that Ford Fiesta. How about if you're renovating your house so you need to go to Home Depot for a metric ton of lumber and tiles and paint and maybe some power tools to get the job done? The Ford Fiesta is probably too small. There's no way you're going to fit it in a 747 in that packed Home Depot parking lot. Ah, but a pickup truck would be perfect. This may sound simple, even downright obvious, but it's the same way with stocks. When you're saving for retirement, you want low-risk holdings that will give you a slow and steady return. For those of you who don't have time to research individual stocks, you can't really go wrong with a basic, low-cost S&P 500 index fund that tries to mimic the performance of the broader market. Look, I've recommended index funds endlessly here, and I'm going to keep doing it because they are phenomenal. At their best, they help democratize the incredible engine of wealth creation uh, that is the U.S. stock market. America r- remains a, America's a growing country that's very business friendly compared to the rest of the world, uh, particularly the developed world. And when you buy an S&P 500 index fund, you're basically betting on the long term performance of the U.S. economy. You're, You know what you're betting on? You're betting on progress. Historically, that's been a very good bet. That's why I always say that you need to invest your first $10,000 in an index fund. Don't bother to try to pick individual stocks until you have more money than that. Again, first $10,000, index fund. Now, if you're looking to make slow and steady money over a period of decades, that's a retirement investment really in a nutshell, isn't it? You might also consider certain kinds of individual stocks, especially consistent steady-eddy companies with big dividends because of compounding. A 4% dividend yield may not sound all that spectacular, but even if the underlying stock goes nowhere, that 4% annual return will double your money in 18 years – thanks to the magic of compounding. Of course, not every investor is simply trying to fund, uh, fund their retirement. And even if you are, that may not be the only thing you want to do with your savings. This is another important point. You can have multiple objectives. You can and should have multiple pools of money. I like to break things up into your retirement portfolio, where you need to be pretty cautious. And your discretionary may have money portfolio, the extra money that you're not going to need uh, in order to support yourself after late-stage capitalism has ground you down and you're no longer able to work. That discretionary portfolio is where you can afford to take more risks in order to generate faster profits. Make sense? But, mighty big but here, for the vast majority of people, your discretionary portfolio is going to be much less important than your retirement portfolio. Because it's not just retirement. If you want to pay for a house, you want to send your kids to college, you should take a more conservative approach to managing that money. Whatever kind of account you put it in, Your strategy for college tuition savings or future house savings should look more like your retirement portfolio than that mad money portfolio. So please, get to know yourself before you jump down the rabbit hole of getting to know individual companies. Bottom line, trust me, I get it. When you get excited about a particular stock, you often want to dive right in. I've been there before. First, though, you need to consider what you're trying to get out of the market. The answer to that question is not going to be the same for everyone, but Everything else stems from it. You can't make judgments about stocks until you know what characteristics you actually value. Let's go to Paul in Texas. Paul! Booyah, Jim! Booyah, Paul! I've noticed that companies, a lot of them will exceed on one and miss on the other in reference to revenue and earnings per share. So as a shareholder in the companies I'm looking for, if they're going to exceed one and miss one, would it be more important for them to exceed on revenue or would it be more important for them to exceed on earnings per share? Holy cow, what a great question. You know what? Because uh, I've actually done a huge amount of research on this, and thank you, Paul, for asking. It's revenue growth. We want to see pure revenue growth. That means that there's demand for the product. The actual earnings per share may be, in some cases, manufactured literally by tax rate, by buying stock back, but you can't rejigger sales. Okay, know thyself. Always consider what you're trying to get out of the market before you dive into a stock. Oh man, money tonight. yoga won't help you with the type flexibility I'm talking about. I'll reveal the bends you should be doing to get your portfolio in order. Then feeling verklempt about your stock picks? I'll tell you why it's time to snap out of it and how the late, great Maya Angelou, Maya Angelou offered some of the best investing advice I've ever heard. So stick with Kramer. Regular viewers know I've got a lot of rules. The result of more than 30 years in the money management business. First as a broker, then as a hedge fund manager, then as a journalist and a commentator. I've got rules for investing, rules for trading, rules for what to do in a rally or a sell-off, for picking winners, for avoiding losers. That can be a lot to take in. But as I mentioned before, the point of all these rules is to help you learn from my mistakes and develop your own judgment. I just explained why you need to have a clear understanding of your own objectives before you start buying stocks, something more focused than merely trying to make some money. So let's pretend you've already done some self-reflection and you know what you're trying to accomplish. Now you can start buying individual stocks, enough to fill out a diversified portfolio of five to ten names, right? Hold on. Before you buy anything... I need you to do one more thing. First, you have to do the homework. Now, I've covered this before. I'm going to give you a quick version right now. If you're going to invest enough money in a company for it to matter to your portfolio, you need to know what the heck the company does. You need to know how it makes its money and how much money it makes. The Internet has made this whole process much easier. Certainly, when I first started the show, holy cow, this is now a delight. I mean, you can go online, read the SEC filings, which contain a wealth of information. You can listen to or read the transcripts of the conference calls, which I regard as the best way to get familiar with a business and the key metrics that will drive its stock. Feel free to read some journalism on top of that. Listen to some opinions, anything to familiarize yourself with both company itself and the way its stock trades. And, of course, I've written, I don't know, a half dozen books just about this topic, okay, about how to do the homework. But the actual research is just part of doing the homework. If you've learned what you can and developed a thesis, a theory about why you think the stock is headed higher, there's one final step. You have to explain that theory to another living, breathing human being. It doesn't even have to be a professional. You can talk to your mom, your kids, a friend. The important thing here is that you put your thesis into words, that you can basically comprehend it yourself. Lay out why you want to buy this thing and why you think it's headed higher. If there are major holes in your theory or or you're relying on wishful thinking, usually a reasonable adult or even a mature teenager will be able to catch that. Once you've done that, though, then you are ready to pull the trigger. For those of you who are tuning me out because you can't stand to hear another word about homework, I'm done. That's it. That's all I'll say about that process of preparing to buy a stock, because tonight I'm trying to focus on the bigger picture. So let's fast forward a little. Once you've done the homework, you can build a diversified portfolio of five to ten individual stocks. Now, any more than ten, and you'll likely want not have time to keep up with them all. The idea here is that you should be able to do this in your spare time, not that you'll turn money management into a second or third job. Well, how can I have so many stocks for ActionAlertsPlus.com, which you can follow along, obviously, if you subscribe, because i got two research assistants. You're doing it yourself. So let's assume you own shares in a bunch of companies that you genuinely believe in. You now have a thesis for each one. There's no sector overlap, meaning you have five to ten companies in in distinct industries that don't tend to trade together. Diversification, like we play on the show. In short, you have what, in theory, is an ideal portfolio. What's the most important thing for you to keep in mind? Above and beyond everything else, you need to know that your perfect portfolio won't stay perfect for long. Those five to ten stocks you thought were winners? Yeah, unless you're absurdly lucky, not all of them will stay winners. Some will be losers. Some will do nothing. And some of the companies that you liked best will inevitably disappoint you. What can I say? The game is full of heartbreak, which brings me to my next meta rule. Always, please, please try to stay flexible. You have to be flexible because business, by its very nature, is dynamic, not static. Things do change. Markets change. New competitors will enter an in industry and undercut existing players on price to take market share. <laughs> Previously, well-run companies will start executing poorly, and we've seen that time and again. Customers cancel orders. Unforeseen events happen that hurt business or simply make uh, some category of stocks seem less attractive to the big institutional money managers who dominate the market. When something like this occurs, when the story of a company that you own shares in changes, well, then you've got to be willing to acknowledge that things are different. If your thesis is no longer intact, if the reason you gave for buying a stock is no longer valid, then you should sell. This is why you need to explain your picks to another person so that you can recognize when your original idea has stopped being workable. That may sound straightforward, but for decades, so-called experts have peddled the idea that when you buy a stock, you need to be prepared to hold on to it until the, <laughs> until the death of the universe. How many times have you heard someone say buy and hold, buy and hold? Well, I've got to tell you, that's nonsense. Don't get me wrong. I would love to buy a stock and hold it from here to eternity because the story pans out and the darn thing keeps going higher. But if the story doesn't pan out or after a long time there are big changes in the industry, well, you, you got to be willing to sell. Sell, sell, sell. At least sell some. That's why I always tell you it's buy and homework, not buy and hold. I just wish a lot of the graybeards would adopt buy and homework. We'd save people a lot of money. Now, I bring this up because people hate, hate, hate admitting when they've made a mistake. And, of course, they hate selling anything because they're worried about taxes. But once we make up our minds that things are great for, say, Coca-Cola, we don't want the facts to get in the way of a good story, right? But you know what? You can't afford to fall in love with a stock. When you buy shares in a publicly traded company, you're not joining that stock in holy matrimony. You don't swear to stick with it in sickness and health for richer or poorer. You don't need to go to a judge to get a divorce. It's just a piece of paper. So acknowledge when something's changed. If you buy a stock because you believe the underlying company is going to take a ton of market share and then it fails to do so, well, don't move the goalposts on yourself. Don't search for new reasons to hang on. Just get out of there. You must be willing to recognize that companies can take a turn for the worse. Managements make mistakes. CEOs make bad strategic and tactical errors every day. Heck, look, let's pick one. Let's pick Bed Bath and Beyond. You may know that one. It literally spent $5.4 billion buying its own stock back from 2013 to 2017, uh, through 2017. And it was a no fate attempt to boost the earnings per share by shrinking the denominator, so, so to speak, and therefore take its stock price up. But it didn't really work. The company kept losing market share to online competitors like Amazon, and the buyback accomplished next to nothing. By the summer of 2018, Bed Bath had a market capitalization of less than $2.7 billion. They spent twice that amount on the buyback. If they simply put that money in a mattress, the company would now be worth twice as much. You know what their mistake was? The guys running Bed Bath and Beyond were—they weren't flexible. They kept buying back their own stock in the mistaken belief it would help. Don't make the same error. When something goes wrong with the company you own, be ready to stop hoping and start selling. Listen, being unwilling to recognize a term for the worse, as bad as it might be almost always seems to lead to much larger losses than you've already accrued. The bottom line, let's bring it all together. Before you buy a stock, do some homework and come up with a thesis, a reason why you think that stock is headed higher. Once you own it, please stay flexible. If your thesis doesn't play out the way you expected it to, sell the darn stock. Don't keep bashing your head against the wall. Just recognize that things don't always go your way, and then sell, sell, sell. Move on. Liam in Massachusetts, Liam. Booyah, Jim. Booyah, Liam. Hey, I just had a quick question about index funds. Sure. You say with uh, certain stocks, buy them at certain times, like monthly or quarterly or when at a good price. Does that apply to index funds? Because you say to purchase $10,000. Yes, but the remember, funds what I'm really first. trying to do is make it so that you don't necessarily uh, come in all at once. A lot of people just put the money to work. I actually like to space things out, maybe try to catch uh, when you get a real downturn. Uh, if you put all your money in before, then you can't take advantage of it. That's why I like to be flexible. Mike in Texas, Mike. Yeah, hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. Jim, um, I'd like to own some individual names in the tech uh, space, okay. um, but I'm finding that the prices of these stocks are just too expensive. So I've started looking at some ETFs and some mutual funds the, as an affordable way to gain some exposure to these names. And I'd really like to hear what, you, what your thoughts are uh, on the matter. What do well, you think? Well, one of the things that I don't like about the mutual fund industry is they don't update what they really own. So they may be buying the same stocks that you think are too pricey. When it comes to an ETF, that's just actually all you're doing is you're marginizing the same deal. So you either have to decide that the market's too rich or that group is too rich and therefore not to buy. Or, of course, you just say, you know what, I'm going to take a long-term view and I'm not going to game it. Uh, and maybe don't buy all at once, but space out your buys. Matthew in Arizona, Matthew! Hey, Jim. This is Matt. How's it going? I am doing well. How about you, Matt? I'm doing good. Couldn't be better. Hey, I got a, a thing for you. Is it a good idea to invest in the government? If so... Should it be a short-term investment or a long-term investment? Well, look, I mean, cash is short-term investments. Longer term, you may just want to be able to take advantage of some higher rates and get in there and use the power of compounding. I think the conservative investor uh, who is older should be thinking about Treasury. Some young person, and you do sound young, they don't fit. You need to take on more risk, not less. you got your whole life to make up that money if you do lose it. Before you own a stock, come up with a thesis on why you think it's headed higher. And once you own it, please stay flexible. Much more may have money ahead. There's not crying in it, there's not crying in investing. I'm telling you why it's time to take emotions out of it when it comes to picking stocks. Then, how the acclaimed poet Maya Angelou gave me some of the best investing advice I've ever heard. And I say there's always a bull market somewhere every night, right? And tonight, I'm telling you where to find it. So stick with Kramer. Tonight, we're zooming out and talking about the big picture, the stuff you absolutely have to do if you want to manage your own money in the stock market. Before I get back into it, let me just say that if you don't feel like reflecting on what you need from the stock market, if you don't want to do the homework, if you don't want to watch the underlying companies and and give up on their stocks when something goes wrong, nobody's forcing you to do that. There is no gun to your head. It's okay if stock picking is not for you. And that's why Vanguard invented index funds. It's why the Dutch invented bonds, for heaven's sake. You've got plenty of other investment options. So if you're going to play the stock market, and I use the word play pretty loosely, if you're going to invest in it, all right, uh, then you should put in the effort to do it right, don't you think? I think stocks are the greatest engine of wealth creation in history. And you can harness that engine, make it work for you, if you know what you're doing. All right. Now, a lot of this comes down to discipline, the stuff I've been talking about all night. But there's another ultra important component here. Call it the emotional side of the equation. You need the right attitude toward the market because without the right attitude, stocks will break you. I mean, this is a brutal game and you need to make sure you got the right headspace if you're going to play it. I cannot stress this enough. For many of you, managing your emotions will be the hardest part of investing. Harder than even picking winners. Harder than identifying new trends. Harder than knowing when to cut your losses. Why? Because the market is a harsh mistress. At times, owning stocks can feel like being in an abusive relationship. But we just keep coming back because long term, it is a great way to try to make money. The thing is, unless you can perfectly predict the future... You're going to make lots and lots of mistakes. It's inevitable. And when, you, and when mistakes lose you money, that can be very tough to handle. You need the patience, the patience of the Dalai Lama, to not get upset when you buy a stock and it falls off a cliff. Imagine what it was like for me at my old hedge fund before I mellowed out. I was the opposite of the Dalai Lama. When I got something wrong, I would flip out. You did not want to be around me on a down day, especially if I was way too long. So I can tell you from experience that this is not a productive attitude. You know what? If you did read Confessions of a Street Addict, you would know exactly the wrong attitude. I know better than—well, I still made a lot of money, but I was hell to live with. I know better than anybody that you need to try to remain calm because constantly getting mad at yourself just is not sustainable. You'll beat yourself up. It's crazy. You'll end up running out of patience and giving up on the whole asset class. Look, I'm not telling you to be the Dalai Lama. You don't need to be a Buddhist monk to be a good investor. It's okay to get mad or sad when the market punishes you with its behavior. I still do. An Action Alert stock, you know, that stock that my Chapel Trust owns, if it gets really hit, I feel awful. I do. I can't get it out of my system. But you know what? I have to. You can't afford to punish yourself. The market's brutal enough on its own. In other words, get your head on straight. Your head matters in this game. You need to have it on right every day if you're going to spot opportunities and act on them. Yet so many of us approach the market with, let's say, an inferior attitude and an inferior state of mind. Our heads are are clouded by negative thoughts that genuinely throw us off target, making us do the wrong thing. You will be in the wrong frame of mind to spot the next opportunity. So let me uh, be your stock market therapist for a moment. There are a lot of harmful recurring thoughts you can have that will mess with your judgment. But the worst of the worst... When you think to yourself, if only, if only, as in, if only I'd acted sooner on electronic cards, or if only I'd pulled the trigger on NVIDIA ahead of that quarter, or if only I'd stayed short Chesapeake Energy, I could have made a fortune. Don't get hung up on that. Don't get hung up on the woulda, shoulda, couldas. This is wasted time damaging emotion we're talking about. It's destructive to the positive psychology you need when you're making investment decisions. For a long time, I took it to an extreme. I would sit and be mesmerized by a couple of big misses, by things that I got wrong. I'd be obsessed going over the big miss over and over and over again. It wouldn't just be over. You know, I can put it out of my head for action alerts now in a couple hours. I'm talking about days on end. Not anymore. I don't do that took me a long time to learn, but eventually I was able to see just how destructive playing the woulda, coulda, shoulda game can be. If you're an emotional guy like me, you may need to trick yourself into a more productive pattern of thought. I've had to build in all sorts of methods of tricking my mind into not playing this game. Chiefly, removing the stock from my desktop and my mobile stock list. Just, you know, just going in, on my, you know, just taking it right off. Okay, you know, you look at it every day when you scroll down. You see it. It brings up that bad thought. Get rid of it. Just clear it out. If you like it so much after you sold it, go buy it back for heaven's sake. But don't tell me what you could have done or should have done. You didn't. Whether you walked into a big loss or missed out on a big game, it's irrelevant. Stop beating yourself up, for heaven's sake. Bottom line, the stock market can be punishing enough. You don't need to make things harder by punishing yourself. Don't play the if-only game. If you need help curbing this kind of destructive thinking, go to that extreme. Take the stocks off your monitor or your portfolio watch, off your cell phone. You'll be surprised how much better your decision-making becomes when you stop The woulda, shoulda, couldas. Devin in Florida. Devin. Hey, Jim. How's it going? Real good. How about you, Devin? Good, good. What do you got? All right. So I'm 25 years old and maxing out a Roth IRA. And I know you've always suggested investing in low-cost index funds. My question is, should I be 100% of my portfolio in an S&P 500 index fund, or should I be using multiple index funds to build a diversified portfolio? Well, I actually think that what you ought to do is think of it like this. I think that you should put the, the preponderance in an S and P 500 fund. That's terrific, low cost. And then after that, pick one or two. I don't want you to be a mutual fund of mutual funds. That makes it even harder. Just basic bedrock S and P, and then a couple of others. Maybe you like healthcare. Maybe you like tech. That would be my choices. Michael in California. Michael. Hey Jim, thank you for taking my call. Of course. Um, I had a question about 401k plans. My company just put out their 401k plans, and being a novice when it comes to th- those kinds of things, I just wanted to know what um, percentage of my paycheck would be a good starting amount to contribute. Whatever you're the maximum you are Uh because what happens is that this, if you use the power of time, the power of compounding. You will have so much work, but you gotta put it all in. And I always advise people take the max, take the max, take the max. Enough with the what have shoulda, coulda, people. Don't play the if only game. You'll be surprised how much better your decision making becomes once you stop that much more mad money ahead. To quote the great Cindy Lauper, I see your true color shining through. It's not just a great song. It's sage investment wisdom. I'll tell you why. Then I'm helping you find the bull market no matter where it might be hiding. And I'm answering the questions you've been sending me on Twitter. Stay with Kramer. give you a piece of advice that would have saved me a lot of cash and even more uh, heartache back when I was running money professionally, but I didn't know it. This is some genuine sage investing wisdom from the late, great Maya Angelou. When someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. Now, I know she wasn't actually talking about publicly traded companies, but man, if the shoe fits, wear it. All night, I've been trying to hammer home important bedrock principles of investing. And this is another essential one. When some company shows you who they are, believe them the first time. Or to put it as bluntly as possible, when a CEO tells you the business is bad, take their word for it. Don't try to make excuses. Don't bend over backwards, finding justification so you can keep owning the stock of a company that's not delivering. Just get the heck out, at least until the smoke clears and you can better assess the damage. The better I do for my charitable trust it's because of this rule. The worse I do, well, you know what I'm talking about. Let me read you the rest of the Maya Angelou quote, because there's another really valuable insight in here. She continues, people know themselves much better than you do. That's why it's important to stop expecting them to be something other than who they are. All right, same thing holds true in the corporate world. A company's executives executives are almost always going to know their business better than you will, unless they're being ridiculously negligent. They have access to information you don't. They can spend 80 hours a week or more running their company. You have your own job, and even if you manage money full-time, there literally aren't enough hours in a day for you to devote half of that time to a single stock in a diversified portfolio. That's why it's so important to listen to what these CEOs and CFOs have to say, whether on the quarterly conference call or when they come visiting on our show or even someone else's show. High-level executives, they are your best resource. I wouldn't have them on if I didn't think that. Don't get me wrong. You can't just take everything that comes out of a CEO's mouth as gospel. There are plenty of executives who are excessively promotional or who talk like they've had rose colored glasses welded or directly under their face. I find that what I'm really looking for are people who aren't wearing these. Okay, these are actual rose colored glasses. All right, anyway, uh, I try to ask more skeptical questions whenever my cockeyed optimism alarm goes off during these interviews, because I don't want to—I I can't have you get snowed by watching the interviews that I do. Occasionally, CEOs can be misleading. Almost never flat-out dishonest, though, because lying about material information is a crime. So sometimes you need to take what they say with a grain of salt, if not a full carton of Mort- Morton's iodized. Uh, but the more cynical among you would be surprised by how many straight shooters you'll find at the highest levels of corporate America. I really believe that. Don't, I, I don't want to be too cynical here. And again, when we have someone on the show with a track record of being extremely candid or extremely reliable or both, I try to point that out. It matters. When honest, smart executives tell you that something's going incredibly awry, well, you should believe them. And when they say it's going incredibly well, it might be a reason to buy this can be a very profitable strategy if you get, uh, get it right. So let's take an example. When Mark Benioff, the bankable CEO of Salesforce.com, came on the, the show during the depths of the Great Recession and told us his cloud-based software company would be just fine, we well, you had to grit your teeth and buy it. From November of 2008 to July of 2018, Salesforce gave you a 1,900% gain, and you had to get in it when he said things were fine. He was bankable. When Patty Doyle, the former CEO of Domino's Pizza, came on in February of 2010 and told us how he was going to turn things around, his stock was trading at 10 bucks. When Doyle retired in June of 2018, Domino's was at $282. Wow. These guys deserve the benefit of the doubt. If you didn't trust them, you missed out on some monster moves. And I, you know, look, I don't want to be too proud here, but I said, hey, listen, I believe this guy. And that's what helps. It helps to have me say it because I've thought about this a lot, and I've talked to a lot more CEOs than pretty much every, anybody in the world. More important, if management tells you something is wrong, well, you should take them extra special seriously. Specifically, when a company preannounces a shortfall, you need to wait at least 30 days before you even think about buying that stock. A lot of people are tempted to buy these negative preannouncement names as they're pummeling on to, new, uh, to bad news, to new lows. They figure the bad news has got to be already baked in. But in practice, I found that other than some rare exceptions, the opposite's the case. When business is so ugly that a company is forced to come out early and cut numbers, I think it typically means there's more bad news ahead or they wouldn't say anything. Why? Well, it all comes back to Maya Angelou. When someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time, that negative pre-announcement is the first time. When management pre-announces a bad quarter, they're not just looking at the past, they're looking at the order book to their future. Believe me, if there were any hope that business would get better, the company wouldn't wouldn't have to cut numbers between its regularly scheduled quarterly reports. If they thought that maybe something could get better, not worse in the next 30 days, they just keep their darn mouth shut and wait. Yet pre-announcements signal ongoing weakness that's going to continue. That's why I recommend waiting that 30 days to see if anything improves before you even think about buying that kind of stock. And this, this will really keep you out of trouble. Because I can count on one hand the number of times when uh, it, things got better within a month. Sure, now you're going to miss some great opportunities. Like I said, there's, maybe there's a half dozen. Uh, and sometimes the stock bottoms early. But most of the time, though, after 30 days, you'll sidestep yet another brutal leg down. I know 30 days sounds arbitrary, but I've done a lot of homework on this particular question, and i found that it usually takes at least a month for the bad news to get fully baked into the stock price, if not longer. The bottom line, sometimes it can seem like we live in a post-truth world where it's impossible to know who to believe on any particular issue. But even the most skeptical among you should believe executives when they pre-announce an earnings shortfall. Believe me, these people don't like slashing their own numbers. (sighs) They do it because they don't see much hope of things improving by the time their company's scheduled to report its its next quarter. So in the wake of a shortfall, you have to presume that the stock won't be bouncing back anytime soon. For the next 30 days, you should treat the darn thing as a falling knife. In short, even if you're not a huge fan of Maya Angelou's poetry, you should trust her investment advice. Stick with Kramer. I spent a lot of time tonight talking about the many ways in which you can make mistakes and the need to guard against them by knowing when to admit that you're wrong. But let me be clear, the market can be just as wrong as any individual investor. The market makes mistakes every single day. So this is my next big picture lesson for you. Don't assume that the action necessarily makes sense. A lot of times stocks go up or down for the wrong reason or no reason or an outright stupid reason. When a company reports earnings and stock goes down, there is a natural impulse to believe that the company must have disappointed. It must have been a bad quarter, right? I mean, why else is the stock going down? You know what? Often that will be true. But it's not always true. Sometimes there are other forces at work. Stocks will go down on the initial earnings release, then bounce back when management explains things on the conference call, or vice versa, which is why I'm always telling you not to jump to conclusions until after you've listened to the call, which is a huge drag, but it must be done. Especially when we're in the middle of earnings season, with hundreds of companies reporting every day, the market makes a ton of mistakes. But it's not just about errors and judgment. The truth is that stock prices do not always reflect the underlying fundamentals, the actual facts and figures about how the business is doing. The fundamentals are a big part of it. Over the long term, I'd say the most important part, which is why I spend so much time focusing on them and how to understand them. But they're not the whole picture. You have to understand a stock market is, first and foremost, a market of stocks. And just like any other market, it's prone to all sorts of distortions. When Adam Smith wrote about the invisible hand of free market capitalism, He forgot to mention that it's the hand of someone with bad reflexes, lousy coordination, and possibly some kind of neurological disorder. In short, stock prices do not somehow reflect reality all the time, as if by magic. They're as much a product of perception on Wall Street and the mechanics of the money management business as they are a product of the actual fundamentals. By the way, this is why it's possible for you to beat the performance of the averages by investing in individual stocks. If the market worked perfectly... Well, you'd never be able to exploit any opportunities because the whole point of this game is to spot stocks that are mispriced. So why do I bring this up? Because when the action is irrational, it can be very frustrating. I want you to be able to take advantage of these moments where stock prices are simply wrong. Or at the very least, I don't want you throwing up your hands in disgust and giving up on the whole enterprise because nothing makes sense. That would be bad. Remember what I always say about stocks? Greatest wealth engine ever created. So let me go over some of the largest distortions. I spent a lot of time talking about the ETFization of stocks, like an homogenization of stocks, as this has become a major issue for the market. For most of my investing career, you could bank on the fact that about half of the stock's performance came from a sector, meaning how the sector was doing and how Wall Street felt about it. And the other half came from the actual fortunes of the company itself, management. In other words, your average company was in control about half of its own destiny. And this was a good situation for stock pickers, as long as you made sure to avoid sectors that were out of favor with the Wall Street fashion show. You could generally do pretty well by researching companies and trying to predict which ones would do better than their competitors. But the rise of ETFs, that's changed the equation, especially sector ETFs, but also gimmicky ones like the dozen or so that are in large part made up of FANG, our acronym for Facebook, Amazon, Netflix and Google Now Alphabet. Although there's been a resurgence of the power of individual stocks, even the stocks of incredibly well-run companies can get dragged down by ETF-driven riptide. FANG is the most ridiculous example because when, say, Netflix catches a cold, the other three stocks sneeze, even if the streaming video-based business of Netflix has little to do with the advertising-based business of Facebook. A lot of times you'll get situations where sellers throw the baby out with the bathwater. If the worst company in an industry Reports bad numbers, the whole group tends to go down, even if everyone else is doing well. And those are your opportunities. You gotta pounce. Bye, bye, bye. Sometimes the market is just obtuse. You'll see companies reporting good quarter after good quarter to no real effect. And then suddenly, a critical mass of money managers figures out that, yes, things are really going well. So the next time that business reports a strong number, the stock soars. In those cases, you just need to be patient. The caveat here, though, is that sometimes when the market makes a mistake, it's not worth trying to fight it. Because while markets are often irrational, they can remain irrational for longer than you can remain solvent. To borrow a phrase from the late John Maynard Keynes, who, by the way, is an important economist who also is a very good money manager. Your goal here is not necessarily to be right. It's to make money. Sometimes that means being a little cynical about other people's expectations. But here's the bottom line. Don't just assume that stocks that go down deserve it. In the immortal words of Clint Eastwood in Unforgiven, deserves got nothing to do with it. The market is going to make mistakes. Your job is to recognize when it's doing something wrong and to try to take advantage of it. Stick with Kramer. I love hearing from the smartest audience in television. That's you, America. So let's get to some tweets. First, a tweet from brickhand 65 And he says, at Jim Kramer, Jim, why when a caller named Richard calls in, do you and the staff say his name in a high pitch? Hashtag man tweets. Okay. Well, that's a reference to the movie Tommy Boy, with Chris Farley, and David Spade. So let's say a caller is named Richard. We say, Richard. Thank you. Now, a tweet from at Joka9, underscores D, underscores Sousa, and he says, Hi, Jim Cramer. Any advice for new parents investing in something for the newborn child? Right? Education savings or tax-free savings. So many options out there. Do uniform gift to minors to get started. Then you can do some a state-by-state plan. But uniform gift to minors is the way to do it. And remember, buy growth stocks. Remember, they've got their whole lives ahead to make the money back. By qual- high quality growth stocks, the likes of which we talk about all the time on this show. Next up is a tweet from at stallcupwendy. And she says, at mad money on CNBC, I work with male teens and they think you sound like Master Yoda. LOL. I'm learning and so are they. Thank you, Jim Kramer, AKA Master Yoda. You're awesome. At Jim Kramer, mad, mad. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Um, all right. That's, yep, that's precisely why my wife loves me so much. Okay. And here's a tweet from at Russ Benson 5 at Jim Cramer. Jim, other than banks, who benefits from raising interest rates? Well, you know what? It, not really many other companies. Uh, I think that as a corollary, when rates go up, people think that the economy's really strong and therefore people buy the industrials. But the banks are the ones that benefit because directly because they're able to charge you more when you go for a loan. They make more money from your deposits, and they lend them at when rates are going higher. And now a tweet from at Joey underscore Drago underscore, and he asks, Jim, I absolutely love Get Rich Carefully. Will you be writing another book anytime soon? i got to tell you something. This is a very interesting question, Joey, because the economics of book publishing has changed rather radically. And I'll work I'll work my butt off on something like this, and I'll work, I'll work most nights and almost every weekend, and then I'll read the uh, book, and it used to be a very uh, lucrative business to write books. Now it's just a labor of love and I have other labors of love I want to perform including my guard all right here's a tweet from Amy Callandrino, and she says I may not always watch at man money on CBC at Jim Kramer but when I do I take notes so I can do my research later uh, at nerd alert at man money at invest uh, f- uh, hashtag investing I have to tell you I uh, whenever I'm out with people Uh, And I will say this, references, because my late dad would always say this, too. Particularly some people who are, uh, let's say, elderly who play the stock market. They always come out with these long lists of what they took down. And I absolutely love it. And they'll go over whether I like this, whether I like that. It happens all the time to me. And I just think it's terrific. I think younger people don't know how to write down on a piece of paper anymore. That's the difference. They are immediately putting it into their cell phone. They have no list. Because they have no pencil and they have no paper. Here's a tweet from at CleanPros1. And they ask at Jim Kramer, hashtag mad tweets, love the show, Jim. Can you explain annuity investments? I'm 43 with a decent retirement nest egg and term life insurance. Worth looking at annuities or better off individual stocks or ETFs. At Jim Kramer. I would say, and my friend Ken, Fish, Ken Fisherman, who certainly has been the big processor, but I would say pick individual stocks, pick ETFs. Um, Turn life insurance is a fantastic buy. Uh, so I think you're doing things very right, but I like you to be in control of your destiny. Uh, no fees whatsoever when you just buy individual stocks other than the commissions. And here's a tweet from at Gearhead531. And he asks, Hashtag Mad Tweets. What is really going on with inexpensive stocks with high yields? For example, a $7 stock with 11% yield. Thank you. Love the show. Okay, what's going on there is a classic red flag, meaning that people have gotten way too uh, complacent and when a yield is that, when a dividend is that high, distribution is that high, it is often unsustainable. I want you to be very careful of that kind of situation. All right, here's a tweet from at JStanley023, at Jim Kramer. Can you suggest some reading for a young first-time investor? I want you to go to Amazon, and I want you to hit up the name Peter Lynch, okay, and look at One Up on Wall Street. That's the book I cut my teeth on. It's the book that you can cut your teeth on. All right. Well, that's all our tweets, so stick with Kramer. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Kramer. See you next time.